Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to be talking about three things today. Doctrine, circumcision, and Sabbath. Woohoo! <laughs> Hopefully, as we kind of break these things down, uh, you'll leave here realizing... I'll just, I'll just go ahead and just give you what they are. Doctrine? It's Jesus. Um, circumcision? It happened to your heart. It's an inward thing, not an outward thing. Sabbath? Your rest is in Christ. All right? And so we'll kind of unpack that. But follow along as we read uh, 24 verses. Sorry about the length, but you'll hopefully get the context as we go through this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. After what things? Well, um, remember he fed the multitudes. And in John chapter 6, he discusses uh, with the 5,000. And he has this ministry of reduction where he goes from 5,000 to 12. And then, of course, one of those 12 is a traitor. He goes to 11. And then he goes down to 3. And only one person shows up to Jesus' funeral. <laughs> John, the author of the book that we're reading under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. So after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry or Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Not the Jews at large, but the religious leaders. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. And this is also the Feast of Tents, it's also referred to. And this feast was celebrated on the 15th day of the month, Tisri, which would be the Jewish month, but it would, as it would relate to our month of September or the first half of October. So that's the time frame that Jesus is cruising. And his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that the disciples also may see the works that you do. For there, uh, for there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, I mean, remember last week, they said no man has ever spoke like this guy. He has the words of eternal life. To whom can we go? You have these words. And he not only had the words, but he had these miracles that, uh, that accompanying the words they'd never heard and the miracles they'd never seen. And so, you know, they're just trying to give, give the Lord some advice, right? <laughs> hey, Jesus, let me give you some advice. You, you, this, this kind of stuff needs to be seen. Your popularity will escalate. I mean, they already wanted to make you king, but... I mean, just go show them who you are and what you could do, um, and we'll just get a whole bunch of followers. Well, verse 5, neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto him, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. In other words, he knew that they were seeking to kill him, and if he went in to celebrate the feast, as they were suggesting, it, might, it, might have, it wouldn't have been his time to be taken and crucified, because he knew exactly when he was going to lay down his life and when he was going to take it up again. But he also knew about them. He's like, they're, they're not seeking to kill your life, but they are seeking to, to kill my life. And he knew that there would just be a big ruckus. So he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. I test because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go you up at the feast. I'll go not up yet unto the feast, for my time has not yet come. 
So he's saying, it's okay for you guys. Go ahead, go without me. And then I, I like this next phrase, verse 9. But when he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. I don't think we think about it much, but Jesus did a Selah moment. He, he retired or he, he, he would take himself away sometimes and he would just commune with the Father and he would be alone. You ever, you ever be so busy and you have so much coming at you that it's really hard to just have some downtime and some just kind of like recharging your battery type uh, moment? Well, Jesus says, go ahead, go into the, you know, the, the ruckus of the feast, uh, the, you know, the feast of the tabernacles. I'm just going to abide still. And it reminds me of Psalm 4610 where it says, be still and know that I am uh, God. And so, um, verse 10, But when his brethren were gone up, then he went up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Well, where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, He is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceives the people. Jesus is so controversial. I don't know what it is, but you can't, I remember when I had a radio show, they told me, you just can't mention Jesus. And I thought, what? And I only had a radio show in college. I don't want you to think like I was like a disciple of Rush Limbaugh or anything, God rest his soul. But um, it was just this thing I did in college. And uh, the FCC had regulations. And part of, in the, and I was always wondered why uh, Jesus was so controversial. But he's been, he was controversial then. He's controversial today. You just try to mention Jesus Christ anywhere and see what happens. And so um, they were murmuring. Some said he was good. Some, you know, said he wasn't so good. Howbeit, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews. I remember, you do too, but during the election time, uh, this last election cycle, there was people, and I don't, I don't push a certain candidate but there is the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate. But the Republican candidate, as you know, is Trump. <laughs> We're saying our polling numbers are so off. Because you remember how no one would say that they supported Trump. No one did it openly. They were afraid. And I'm not comparing Trump with Christ at all. But there's this dynamic where where a public figure is so controversial and so hated and despised that people actually like them, but they don't want to say it openly, right? And that's why they couldn't figure out the numbers ever, because there were so many secret Trump supporters that they would just be like, yeah, Trump, I hate him too. They would vote, they would vote red. Um, and I think that's what a little bit's going on here. They're afraid of the public backlash, and they were afraid of what the religious leaders uh, uh, might think. And the religious leaders were afraid of Jesus because of their own job security. I mean, think about this. He's flipping over the money changers' tables. He's, he's driving people from the temple, not to the temple. And when the people come to the temple for all the sacrifices and feasts, they trade the money, they make the profit off the interest, they sell a higher price uh, sacrificial animal, and so they could get gain. And Jesus is, you know, he's cleaning that place, and he's saying, this is my father's house, and the zeal of my house has consumed me. And so they were not happy about Jesus at all. And then he said in verse 16, Jesus 
Um, oh wait, verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast of the uh, feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now this is in the middle of the feast. He, remember, he took his time. He was abiding still, just hanging out. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, never having learned? What they're saying is they, the school of theology was a science back in the day. If you were a scribe, let's say, you would be making equivalent to like 30000 a year. Uh, and that was super good for those, uh, uh, that, or the equivalent. They, they were so well respected, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, they were the, the cultural elites. And you could only learn uh, what they would teach from not only the, the Old Testament, but all the, the Talmudic teachings that were coming up and all the, the customs and extra biblical stuff if you went to the rabbinical schools. And so when Jesus goes in the middle of this feast, knowing that they're against him, and then he goes to the temple and he starts teaching, and they said, how could this guy even know what he knows? Mind you, Jesus is the living word who knows all about the written word. Remember, he's the word that became flesh. So it's God's word incarnate communicating God's word to people uh, in public. And so Jesus says this, Jesus answered and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. So his teaching is not his own, but him that sent him. Now Jesus, he, look at what he says in verse 17. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So Jesus wasn't, wasn't touting a new religion. He, wasn't, he was all about glorifying the Father. And he said, um, verse 18, he that speaks of himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks his glory uh, that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Remember, Jesus, whenever he did a miracle, he said, it's not me that's doing it, it's the Father that did it through me. The words that I'm saying, it's not me saying it, it's the Father giving me words. And I think how Jesus operated his life was, the reason why he abode still was, he, the Father probably told him, wait, go, stay, proceed, Heal that one. And Jesus was so in tune to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. It was the triune Godhead working through Jesus in his humanity that he was so connected to the deity that he was perfectly harmonious in the way he lived his life. That is the Christian life. That is the Christian experience. It's so far down the road from where I'm at, right? I mean, Jesus was the perfect example of how to live the Christian life. And he's, he's saying, my doctrine's not mine, the miracles aren't mine, the power's not mine. I only act in dependence, not independent, but in total dependence to the will of the Father. And so he then makes this comment, verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you go about trying to kill me? <laughs> what is that, the sixth commandment? Or maybe that's divorce, seventh commandment? So 
Jesus is saying, you guys tout the law, you brag about being teachers of the law, and he's teaching them having never learned and gone to rabbinical school, yet he is the high priest. He's what the whole Bible's about. He's basically, he's reading his autobiography. The Bible was about him, and he knew it. He authored it from heaven. He knows the Bible. He is the Bible, not this, but you know what I mean? He is the word of God. And so he then calls them out and he says, why are you, why are you trying to kill me? That's not very much keeping the law, murder, right? Thou shalt not kill. And he says, you guys don't even keep the law yourself. And I think it's gonna, this is going to be interesting because you'll see these religious people paint themselves in a hypocritical corner. They're, they say do this and they don't do it. You know, they try to put heavy burdens on people that they can't bear, but they won't even lift one finger to do it themselves. It's like do as I say, not as I do. And the religious, you know the number one reason when people, this is going to be that survey says show. Number one reason why people don't want to come to church that don't normally go to church, you want to know what the number one reason is? Hypocrisy. That's the number one reason. They're like, Jesus is just all right with me, just not his followers that don't, you know. <laughs> They're okay with Jesus. They just don't like church and Christians and the hypocrites. And it's because they're saying one thing and doing another. And I'm like, with that same logic, would you ever go to Sam's Club? I mean, really, are there hypocrites in Sam's Club? Better not shop there. <laughs> You know, some hypocrites at Arco, the cheapest gas in town, or maybe Sam's Club. Well, Arco or Sam's Club, I bet there's hypocrites, right? I mean, you can't hide from hypocrites. There's hypocrites everywhere, right? I'd be a hypocrite if I said I wasn't a hypocrite. We all are, to some extent, you know? But what, what, was, what was so bothersome with these guys is that they were telling, they were putting all these burdens and stuff on them and acting like they are pulling it off when they're not. And Jesus calls them to the carpet and he says, you guys break the law. In fact, you're openly trying to murder me, which the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So he, now he's going he's gonna to point this out. The people said, and said, you have a devil who goes about to kill you. Really? These are the same people later on, like before Easter, and he's right they're saying Hosanna, and then the very next few days they're saying crucify him. So these guys are so fickle. Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and you all marvel. Now, the work that they wanted to kill him over was from John chapter 5, uh, the guy that he heals at the pool of Bethesda. And he did it on the Sabbath. That's why they're mad. And we'll get, we'll get back to that. And now he's going to use some logic here because he knows the word. He says, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. Now, the parenthetical thought here, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. In other words, he's using them in their own like traditional customary line of thinking. He knows that, that they give all the credit to Moses. And it's like a Moses and Jesus showdown oftentimes, you know. And they so idolized Moses that, that um, they, they felt like Jesus was in competition. So he uses kind of this logic with them. Now, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, 
And then the parenthetical phrase, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. The fathers meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's when it started, way back in Genesis 17, and we'll look at that. But he says, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man, a baby, by the way, a man-child. If a man on the Sabbath day received circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made uh, this person whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the parents, but judge a righteous judgment. And you see that there's this clash. There's circumcision, eighth day. There's Saturday, which is the Sabbath, right? Which is the seventh day. But what if this person, born eight days before, the eighth day then lands on Saturday? It's almost as if God rigged it. He rigged it to get them into this like religious tension, this lawish tension, like, what should we do? What should we do? Is it, should we do this Moses thing and circumcision? What's better, to keep the Sabbath or to maybe we should, do, let's, just, let's just circumcise this baby on the sixth day or maybe, maybe the ninth day or the seventh day, but definitely if it's on the Sabbath, we can't do it. So they're in this tension and Do you think God knew that these were going to clash? Most certainly he knew that they were going to clash. And did he know that Jesus was going to show up? And and it's so ironic that whenever there's a Sabbath, there's Jesus and there's a showdown. And so, let's pray and then we'll look into these things. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could gather. I just pray that you would really minister to hearts our, our circumcised hearts. That sounds weird to say, Lord, but our changed hearts. Our, you've taken out the old stony heart. You've given us a new one. You've given us this heart transplant. You've given us a new identity. Lord, speak to the new man. Speak to the new woman. Speak to your new creation. Edify us. Build us up. Uh, and Lord, may we be equipped here leaving here so we could all go do the work of the ministry. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you draw your attention back to uh, John 7, 16 and 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, My doctrine is not mine, but he that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, uh, whether it be of God or whether I speak of of myself. The doctrine of Christ is Christ. The doctrine of Christ is Christ. It's not doctrines. It's the doctrine of Christ is Christ himself. He is the truth and he is the life. In him is wrapped up all the teachings and he's the teacher of the teachings. Christ is the doctrine of Christ. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Apostle Paul encouraging young preacher Timothy and he says, Timothy, preach the word. Just be, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not want to endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they shall heap unto themselves teachers having itching ears. They just want to be told something that they want to hear, right? And he says, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and then be turned unto fables. Let me ask you, who is the truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so it's like they don't want to hear Jesus. They would rather hear fables. 
They want to hear things peripheral, but they don't want to hear the things that are preeminent, which are in Christ. What would people rather hear about? What kinds of fables fill stadiums? Let me ask you that. What kind of fables fill stadiums? Is it prophetic preaching? Is it prosperity preaching? That's kind of popular. Is it um, man-centered preaching? Is it psychological preaching? Right, all about your soul, which is what psychology is, right? The study of the soul. Is it rigid, ritualistic, rule-keeping preaching? That works for people. Um, is, it, um, is it how to be rich, young, skinny, and spiritual type preaching? Is it political preaching? That's popular, right? Just get, get you a conservative, you know, guy in there and we'll just rail on the White House, the courthouse, the, <laughs> the, all the houses. I mean, what, what do you think people are saying they're turning from the truth, the doctrine of Christ, and they're turning from that to something else? You fill in the blank, right? Would people rather hear about Christianity or Christ? Be honest. What seems more entertaining? Christianity or Christ? They sound the same, right? But they're not, right? So you, you think about how subtle the semantics are, and I could go down Christianity Highway or I could go down Christ Highway. And of course we want them to be compatible. Makes, what makes us a Christian is Christ. What makes us a Christian is Christ. And so, um, you know, when you had bookstores, you remember when there was Christian bookstores? Remember when that was a thing? Remember when there was Barnes & Noble? I know there's still one not too far from here. Um, but even if you go into Barnes & Noble, which isn't a Christian bookstore, if there's a Christian section in Barnes & Noble, what do you think are gonna be the best-selling books in the Christian section in a bookstore? Self-help books, self-help books. It, there's a book maybe in Christ alone, like that song you guys sang, I love that song, I love the words, in Christ alone. What if it was a book just titled In Christ Alone? And then there's like, how to be a skinny, wealthy, prosperous Christian. Where do you think in relationship, what do you think is gonna sell more, right? Unlocking all the prophecies that will also unlock your financial success. Which one are you going for? Which one is the most of the community going for? I'm just saying, I'm not saying, I'm not saying those things are bad. I am saying sometimes the good is the enemy to the best. Boom. Did you hear that? That's not original with me. Good is sometimes the enemy of the best. What's the best? Jesus. Is it good to study prophecy? And uh, Yeah, we do it on Sunday night. Come tonight. We're, do, we're going through the book of Revelation. But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews. I have a dad joke about that, but I will reserve it. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read the last part of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6. And I want to point something out to you. Because he's going to talk about milk and meat. Right? And they were struggling a little bit. And first of all, to give you some context, um, chapter 4 is about entering into rest. 
not to just go into the promised land, but to be with the person of the promised land. Christ is the rest, and he's talking about that in chapter four. Um, chapter one, he's, Christ is better than the angels, and he's talking about he's the creator, um, and so, so on and so forth. In chapter five, he's talking about Christ being our high priest. That's verse five. So Christ has also glorified himself to be made a high priest. And he said unto him, today, or thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. But drop down to verse 11. He says, of this topic, we have many things to say, and it's hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles or the word of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for they're a babe. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm not going to con- condemn Nevaeh because she doesn't want a double-double from in and out when she's like, you know, she has no teeth. I know that she's not that way now. Um, but when she was, you know, the first few months of her life, you don't condemn babies for being babies, you know. But... There's a time where you grow teeth and you move past, you know, having a bottle and you, you, you get an appetite for uh, other things. And so that's what he's challenging them in this area. And so let's go on. He says in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. You ever thought about repenting from dead works? You're doing something good, but it's not good. (laughs) Even though you're doing something in the name of the Lord, and it ends up being wood, hay, and stubble. This was a big deal in Utah, repenting from dead works. Like, okay, you did a missions trip for two years. You ever thought about repenting of dead works? You know, things done in the name of God without God at all. Think about it like that. Faith towards God, a doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. So he's talking about all of these doctrines. In the context, he's saying, I wish I could really explain to you how magnificent Jesus is because he's the meat, but it's like we need to go back to the basics. And I used to have this reversed. I used to think that doctrines, plural, were the meat and Jesus was the milk. Oh yeah, Jesus, you know, he's Sunday school right? <laughs> or he's like when I was a little, well, I didn't go to church when I was little. I did. I, go, I went to church um, Easter Sunday. My grandma took me like five times in my life, and she'd always take me to Sears or Pennies. Remember, you, you guys used to call it J.C. Pennies or Pennies or Montgomery Ward, and I'd get a three-piece polyester suit, and I would feel so photogenic at what I'm like seven or six, and then it was all about the basket, and it was all about, and I don't know what church it was. It was very formal, and I don't remember anything about it, but I do remember the polyester suits and the Easter basket. But I'm, I'm here to say that doctrine is the milk, Christ is the meat. Teachings is the milk, Christ the teacher is the meat ceremonies are the milk, the Savior is the meat. The law is the milk, the Lord of the law is the meat. Unleavened bread is milk, I know that sounds like a contradiction, (laughs) but the bread of life is meat. 
Holy days are milk. The holy one is the meat. Theology is milk. Theos, which is the Greek word for God, is the meat. Christianity is the milk, and Christ is the meat. Now, we need, bo- we need both milk and meat, but I'm saying, why settle for less when you could have the more? Jesus. He's the meat. I remember um, knowing so much of doctrine and so little of Christ, and I know this is kind of a personal testimony here, but to be honest, I was more familiar with the system of theology rather than the savior of theology. And, um, and I'm not proud of that, but it's just where I was. I knew much about the word of God, but I felt as though I knew little of the God of the word. And to be honest with you, there's been many theological schools that have started. You know, Harvard, the first Christian university in all of America, You had to have a relationship with Christ, all that stuff that I've talked about, in order to get into the school. Could you imagine where their theology department is today? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's like godly men and women that teach there. But have you ever met someone that knows so much theology and they're so doctrinally sound (laughs) or stiff or rigid? It's like, do you, is there any love? Is there any life? Or is it just all about being doctrinally correct? Have you ever met anyone like that? That's why they call them cemeteries and not seminaries. Because <laughs> it's like they, they know it. They, they could write books about it. But it's like they know little of the one whom it's all about. So here's a good quote. We don't come to the Bible to learn of facts, but to learn of the Father. Amen? Look, the facts are good. Um, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them all, and there you have the facts of life. The facts are good. Yeah, you like that? <laughs> the facts are good, but the Father is better. Don't let the good become the enemy of the best. We need to know what we believe and why we, we believe it, but you know what's even better? We need to know who we believe and why we believe in Him. It's a what versus a who. And they're okay. One's better. In fact, um, this guy, John Darby, he goes on to say on the, on the verses that we just read, now the Spirit will not stop at this point with Christians, but will go on to that full revelation of his glory, which belongs to them that are of a full age and indeed informs us for that state. We easily perceive that he inspired or that the inspired writer uh, tries to make the Hebrews feel that, they, uh, that he was placing them on a higher, more excellent ground by connecting them with the heavenly and invisible Christ, and that Judaism kept them back in the position as children. This, moreover, characterizes the whole epistle of Hebrews. And so he's saying, because they were settling for ceremonies rather than the Savior, it was holding them back. And they were all stuck on all the peripherals and all the other things rather than to be focused on Christ who is better. Christ who is better. So the whole theme of the book of Hebrews, and I know we're in John, 
on, but I wanted to take you to, to Hebrews, and you've probably heard me say this before, but the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than sacrifices. He's better than the Sabbath. He's better than angels. He's better than creation. He's better than the Old Testament. He's better than the temple. He's better than milk. He's better than pictures and shadows, which were all in the Old Testament, but now we have the substance because we have the Savior. Why settle for something less when we could have Christ who is better? That's the point. Next topic, circumcision. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers, and you on the Sabbath day circumcise a child. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, because they're, they're, they're you know, making a moral choice of which one do they want to keep there. Are you angry at me because I have made a man whole on the Sabbath day? So Jesus, his argument is something like this. You blame me for healing an impotent man on the Sabbath, yet you break the Sabbath to circumcise the child if the eighth day after its birth falls on the Sabbath. You say that the law of circumcision was given to Abraham is older than the Sabbath law and must be kept uh, if the Sabbath is to be broken. Now the law of love and mercy is older than Moses. Why find fault if it is kept on the Sabbath? They should judge righteously instead of outward. And I want to just kind of ask, ask it this way. Is it legal or is it loving? Now you could see the kind of the moral tension that people were, the dilemma that, that, that people were in. Because like I said, every time the Sabbath rolls around, Jesus rolls into town and there's a showdown. All the time. You read Sabbath and you're like, oh, here it comes. Jesus could have did it on like Tuesday. And he probably did a lot of that, but he's like, no, I want to, there's a clash, there's a clash, and he's trying to make a point. There's an older law, and it's love. There's a higher law, and it's mercy, and he wanted to point that out. Now, let me just make this point. Slavery at one point in our country was legal, but was it loving to purchase another human being and to um, inhumanely treat them? It's legal, but is it loving? Right? Now, Jesus gives this example on loving your neighbor, and then there's a priest, and then there's another religious Jew, and they, one walks around the other way, one walks around the other way. Uh, why? Because if they touched him, thinking that he was dead, ceremonially, that would have been a breach of the law, and they'd have to go wash themselves, and they thought, well, let's just, let's just be more right than loving. Let's be more legal than loving. And then Jesus says, well, there's this half-breed who doesn't know about all the ceremonies, picks him up, puts him on his horse, takes him to the inn, pays the bill. I'm going away. I'm coming back. If there's anything else, I'll take care of it, put it on my tab. What's more loving? Being legal or being loving? And so I, I probably shouldn't say this when it's controversial, but abortion is legal. But what's more loving, to end a life or to save a life? Now, I'll put this caveat, and my wife had this, and our kids are older now, but <laughs> sorry, Chloe, if you're in the building. We, are, we had this discussion, like, you know, uh, okay, so if, I'm a, if it's up to the child lives or I live, do we abort the child and I live? And I said, babe, I'm saving you. Sorry, Chloe. <laughs> so, you know, 
but I, that's, a, that's a, like a moral dilemma here. But the point is, just because something's legal, love is the higher road. Um, the Sabbath was legal and lawful, but is it loving to let your animal die if it needs help on a Saturday? So Jesus says, if your ox falls over on Saturday, and it's like, oh man, why didn't I fall on Sunday? You know? <laughs> Do you wait? Do you wait till the middle of the week? You're like, hey, Oxnard, you know, hang in there, bud. I'm pulling for you. Well, I'm not pulling because I can't pull anything. <laughs> I'm pushing for you, and I can't do that either. Um, <laughs> so the Sabbath law is legal, but is it loving to let someone suffer when they could just be helped on a Saturday, or should you wait? And I, like I said, I think God rigged it and knew that circumcision and the Sabbath would clash, and Jesus points it out. And here's where, here's where God uh, introduces it. Look at uh, Genesis 17, way back then. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you um, shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and that shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. So there you have it. Now, when God did this, don't you think that it was going to clash? He knew that it was sometimes going to roll over and it'd be simultaneous with uh, the Sabbath. And so I've mentioned this before, but there, even today in modern Israel, when you go, I was staying in uh, Jerusalem, uh, or maybe it was Tel Aviv, I don't know, but it was the Sabbath, and I was staying high up in, the, in a hotel um, and the elevator stopped on every floor on the Saturday. And I'm like, what's the deal with this? Because I'm like on the 12th floor or something. You ever, <laughs> have you ever done that? Or you seen it? Um, Elf, right? He presses all the, all the buttons. So it's like, ding dong, ding dong. So all the way up. And I asked, I'm like, what's the deal? And they're like, what's well, the Sabbath? Like, I'm the dumb one, you know? Okay. So it's the Sabbath. So boop is considered work. They, they thought pushing the elevator button was work on the Sabbath. So instead of pushing it, they would have all the, only on Saturday, have all the buttons of the elevator rigged um, so no one would be doing any work on the Sabbath. So Jesus knew these guys were hypocrites, just outwardly conforming, trying to outrighteous and uh, religiously compete with the Pharisee next to him. And like I mentioned, when we live in Utah, everyone was in competition to outrighteous the LDS, LDS person next to him. Now, lovely people, just the religion just caused this like fierce religious competition because it's a works-based religion. Everyone's working and they're, they're like trying to outwork the next person and it becomes somewhat of a competition. If you're earning self-righteousness, right, how much righteous do you need to get into heaven or to become a God in their system? I mean, a lot, so you better get to work, right? And so um, the, the sad thing of it was is that all this religious culture, it created the, another subculture that was underground. Depression was off the charts. Suicide was, was the number one leading cause of death for males 18 to 35. Debt was off the chart. I mean, they were leading the nation statistically in many of these areas. Um, divorce, you know, like families are forever and not there. Um, alcohol, 
drug abuse. First people we led to the Lord, the, the guy overdosed. The, brother, the girl that got saved, her brother overdosed the same week that she came to Christ. Homosexuality. Um, that was a huge deal there, and they're so against it, yet it's going on big time. The, the males, the two missionaries, and I'm like, how do you, that what? You go off and do a mission and then you come back gay? I don't understand that. Um, but they, they would come to us and tell them uh, what they were struggling with, but their, their, uh, there was no love, there was no mercy, there was no understanding with their religious system. So the best way to get out of that is to kill yourself. And that was happening all the time because they can't face the consequence of falling under the religious performance trap that they were forced under. Um, uh, gambling, uh, all, these, all these kinds of vices were off the charts. But they had to keep a good outward image just to keep their temple recommend card. And it's, it's, a, it's a rigged system. If you don't get the temple recommend, you can't go in and you can't baptize for dead people. You can't release them and put them in the true church. And, you know, but if you drink and smoke and chew and run with those who do, you lose your card. And so it's this game. And you had to be up on your ties and they, they do tithe reconciliation with you and you got to be current on your religious tax and pay it all. And so it's this religious game and we saw it, we saw it, we saw it, we saw it. Love the people and they would get worn out to the point where they're like, we can't do it, we can't do it. And then we'd introduce them to Jesus. We're like, good, you can't do it. He did it for you. This is called grace. Let us teach you about God's unmerited favor or Christ's riches, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. But this was all an outward show. The law is like measurable progress in this, uh, in this Jewish culture. It's seen outwardly uh, where Jesus was talking about um, a glory that is done to a glory to God, not a self-glory or a self-righteousness. And when Jesus uses his harshest language, you would think it would be against the drunkard, the prostitute, the gambler, the... No, it's the people that were saying one thing and were another thing. So his harshest language were to these religious people that he says are shutting up the kingdom of, of heaven. And he says they make proselytes of these people and they make them a twofold worse child of hell than themselves. He has the harshest language for these religious hypocrites. Look at uh, here's definition, a person who puts a false appearance of virtue or religion, a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. It actually comes from the Greek where they put masks on and they would do, perform plays, you know? And so uh, that, Hippocrates, I think it is, is where the word originally comes from. They're acting, 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 that's what it is, it's acting. So look at what Jesus has to say. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees have authority to tell you what the law of Moses says, so you should obey them, do everything uh, they tell you to do, but their lives are not a good, good examples for you to follow. Um, they tell you to do things, but they do not do those things themselves. They make strict rules that are hard for people to obey. They try to force others to obey all the rules, but they themselves will not try to follow any of those rules. The only reason they do what they do is for other people to see them. It is interesting when you're in Israel, too. I, when I was first there in Jerusalem, I'm like, whoa. I mean, dudes would have the Bible on their front of their forehead. Not all of them, but the, you know, the, the more 
right-wing conservative ones, you could tell like who's really serious about this beard thing, you know, where it says in the law, don't trim the edges of your beard. I'm like, man, that guy's got like four feet hanging off his chompers. Look at this next one, Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So they're tithing off their, their vegetable garden even. That's how kind of they're getting so minute about. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. I love that phrase, Right? And you'll find religious people get so like on the letter and the jot and the thing and they miss the whole point of like love and mercy and help. But like, back to that whole thing again, they'd rather be so right rather than, you know, uh, righteous. So verse 25, Matthew 23, 25. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He called, if you read Matthew 23, I'm just cherry-picking some of these, but if you read the entire chapter, it's, it's a slam against these religious hypocrites. I mean, he just calls them to the mat, to carpet, and he doesn't hold back. Um, for you are, you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He uses the example of cups and graves and says, you have the most beautiful tomb on the outside. You make it look so good, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. Paul doesn't hold back any punches with this group either. In Galatians chapter 6, the whole book of Galatians, by the way, is writing to this cluster of churches in Galatia, telling them, you know, watch out for these, these religious hypocrites. And then he says on circumcision, Galatians 6.13, for they themselves who are circumcised uh, uh, keep the law, but desire to have. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Have you ever seen someone, you know, like, they just try to make them conform outwardly and they don't, they're not concerned with how they are inwardly. It's like if they could just make them look right, it's almost like that religious institution, whatever it may be. If we could just get everyone to conform, if we could make them look the same, act the same, do the same, then they kind of glory in the flesh and they glory in the numbers. That's the way it was in Utah. It was just so obvious. You're just glorying in their flesh. You're making like religious robots and you're just, you're doing it to glory in the flesh and control them and manipulate them. And so Paul says, these guys are doing the same thing. Philippians 3, watch out for those who do evil, those dogs. That's what he calls them. Those are harsh words. Those who insist on circumcision. Now Paul was one of those people, yet now he met Jesus and now he's coming out against who he was before. It is we not they who have received the true circumcision. For we worship God by means of the Spirit and rejoice in our life union with Christ Jesus. We do not put any trust in external ceremonies. Now this is going to be hypocritical. Look at this. Putting Christ on our arm does not put Christ in our heart. <laughs> Why is that hypocritical? I have, for me to live as Christ, on my arm, Right? But you know what would be hypocritical is if I never was born again 
and I never received Christ, and I don't have a relationship with Jesus, and I have none of my sins forgiven, I'm just trying to look like a Christian, but I'm not really a Christian. That's what hypocrisy is. Putting Jesus in your arm doesn't put Jesus in your heart. Um, I was having a conversation with a man before church. He's like, you could sit in church and it doesn't make you a Christian. And I said, I totally agree. Like sitting in your garage doesn't make you an automobile, right? So putting, putting Christ on your arm does not put uh, Christ in your heart. And so a person could wear a wedding ring, but that doesn't mean they're married, right? You, I could put this on a single guy's finger and it doesn't make them married, and speaking of tattoos, have you ever seen people that get their, um, their husband or wife, it's a ring tattoo now, it's kind of trendy, and have you ever seen those same people get divorced, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> oops. <laughs> so, a person could get circumcised, but that doesn't mean they know and love God. Is that true or not? A person could get baptized, and it doesn't mean that they know or love God. You could just go through a ceremony. But God, and we're wrapping this up here, but God is always about our heart and our spirit, not our outward conformity, but our inward unity and relational oneness with the Father. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and the Lord uh, God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and you may live. He was all about the heart, the heart, the heart, the heart. Look at Colossians chapter 2. I love, oh wait, we missed Deuteronomy. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Um, I love Colossians chapter 2. It's a phenomenal chapter. It, the whole book is, but I love chapter 2 specifically. And he says, you are complete in him. Stop there. Stop the press. You are complete in him. In case you didn't see that on the end over here. <laughs> You're complete in him. You are complete in him. And in verse 80, it's like, don't let anyone trick you out of that. Don't let anyone fool you. You're complete. We start with the word done. We start with the word complete. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 6 says, you are accepted. He starts with your identity. This is who you are in Christ. You're complete. That look, there's nothing you need to do to make your acceptance and your spot with God in heaven forever secure. You're complete because it's based on what Jesus has done for you, not what you have done for or against Jesus. It's a gift of grace. You are complete in him. And Christ is in you and you're in him. Now, in whom, Jesus, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what's a circumcision made without hands? When you accept the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and you say something like, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'll never be good enough for heaven. Will you forgive me? Will you give me the free gift of eternal life? Boom, whatever. Those aren't magic words. Just whatever. You're putting your faith in Christ. He's the object of your faith. Something takes place on the inside where the Old Testament, it took place on the outside. Now, let me just remind you, when someone performs the act of circumcision, and I think rabbis today will just do in-home services. I don't know how they do the COVID thing, but they'll show up to your house, probably in New York, and they'll do a little, you know, a little circumcision thing. 
I don't know why these priests have a New York accent, but... Um, and they could be here, okay, they could be everywhere. But my point is this, when the skin gets removed, the skin doesn't grow back. When the skin gets removed, the skin doesn't grow back. It's irreversible. Circumcision is irreversible. I know this sounds grotesque and we're not familiar with this as a Gentile because it's, you know, uh, it's not something that we're, we don't have parties about it and it's not something that we, we gather the whole family uh, for and everything. But in the Jewish culture, it was very familiar. But when the skin is removed, it's dead and it never grows back. You can't reverse that. There's just no way to do it. So when Jesus killed your old heart, he circumcised your heart without hands, not with a knife, spiritually speaking, the old you with your old identity, your old spirit that was connected to the devil, that old you cut out new you, new identity. And we don't believe it. We, we, don't, we, miss, we miss these phrases. Circumcised. Your old heart had been cut off. The foreskin of your heart had been cut off and it's not growing back. Christian maturity is learning to become who you already are in Christ. This is who you are. You're accepted. You've been circumcised. Grow into that. A baby doesn't even know they're circumcised, right? They grow into it. So uh, I wanted to point that out. And then Romans 2.29, and there's many other verses on this topic, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, the Old Testament, whose praise is not of men, like an outward sign of glory, but of God. Because if you're going to circumcise without hands, it's not something you could do to yourself. It's something that needs to be done to you, and only Jesus could do it. He's the high priest that does it. He has the authority, the, the position, the power to cut out our old and to put in the new. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Last topic, and this one will go much faster, Sabbath. Back to John 7. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me? Because I have made this person in every way whole on the Sabbath. So, like I said, it seems like anytime Saturday rolls around, Jesus rolls into town and performs a miracle, causing an uproar uh, with the Jewish religious leaders. Jew Jesus knew they all broke the law, and even they were guilty of the Sabbath. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 35, verse 2. Six days you shall work, or shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall no work be done to you. It's a holy day, a Sabbath of the rest of the Lord. Whosoever doeth work thereon shall be put to death. How many people do you think actually died? Or they actually, you know, took this? So Jesus, he knows, like, the wages of sin is death. And, the, and the, then he also built in also, you know, the sacrificial system that an innocent animal is going to die for a guilty person. And it was all pointing to, of course, Jesus Christ, the innocent, sinless Savior dying for us guilty people. But when it comes to them being lawbreakers, he knew that they uh, would break the Sabbath, probably often. In fact, he calls them out on it by saying, look, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath by performing circumcision. Uh, you're breaking the Sabbath, but yet you think it's, you think it's okay to do that. And he says, you're, if we're going to be legal, let's be legal all the way. 
Let's just not be halfway legal, right? So he's calling them out on that. But they were still enraged uh, that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath back in John 5. And look, in fact, look at John 5 up on the screen here. But Jesus answered them and said, My father works hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath by healing that guy at Bethesda, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. And now he's saying, hey, God works all the time, and I work all the time, and if it's the Sabbath, it's okay. I and my father are one. So last, last passage I want you to turn to, Matthew chapter 12, and then we'll wrap it up here. And sorry if this is taking a little bit of time. Um, Matthew chapter 12. I just want you to see this. And hopefully you'll go away today um, just, just kind of being mindful. You know, is, is it lawful or loving? Where did Jesus fall on that issue? Of course, he never broke the law, but he understood the law. And he said, this is a better law. It's an older law, which is the law of love. And it's the right thing to do. Um, and then when it comes to circumcision, you know, that we don't practice that uh, as a religious ceremony, but if we knew our identity, that has happened to our hearts. Male or female, by the way, that's happened to every born-again believer. He's cut off the old and he's replaced it with the new, and it's not growing back, just as it would in the physical sense. It's not in the spiritual sense. Now we're into the Sabbath, and Jesus on this day that he created— but he also created the people and he didn't purpose the people just to be created for the Sabbath, um, but he created the Sabbath for the people. They're getting it all backwards and so Jesus has to remind them. And in Matthew chapter 12, look at this in verse one. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the, the field of corn and his disciples were hungried, or hungered and they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, it's like they were always waiting to catch him. They said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. But when he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and uh, they that were with him? Remember, he was on the run. He was being chased. Um, How that he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which is put in there. It's one of the articles that are in the holy place, which was not lawful for him to eat. Neither was it for him to go in. Neither for them which were with him but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? This is also a reference to the circumcision. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Ooh, it's not about the place, it's about the person. I like that. Every object in the temple, Jesus was greater. It's greater than the temple and all the pictures in that. But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is calling this day that they're reverencing and accusing him of breaking, he owns it. He owns it. This day that you worship, you're worshiping the wrong thing. Jesus owns it. He created things in six days and on the seventh day he rested. But it doesn't mean that he just, he changed his activity. He was done with creation on the seventh day. But don't you think Jesus, uh, he could do, he works all the time, no matter what day it is. So 
he owns the Sabbath, and he just wanted them, them to know that. Then therefore, um, wait, where was I? Oh, verse 9. Uh, and when they departed thence, they went into the synagogue, and behold, there was a uh, man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that, he might, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that have one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath day, will not, he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Especially if that's part of your livelihood. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, is it lawful to do well on the Sabbath? Then he said this. It was like a rhetorical question. And then he just does this. Then he says to the man, stretch forth your hand. He stretched it forth. (laughs) And he restored it like whole, like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. He just said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I own this day. My father works, I work. We're together. They can't stand this guy, Jesus and his interpretation of what's merciful and gracious and loving and the right thing. They cannot stand this guy, Jesus. And he just asked the question, is it wrong to make someone whole and to live on this day, Saturday, on the calendar? And so, in wrapping this up, Luke 6, 9, then Jesus said, I ask you one thing, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or evil, save life or destroy it? Mark two twenty seven. he said unto him, the Sabbath day was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And I just want to close by saying this, rest is in the Savior, it's not in Saturday. Rest is not found in the day on the calendar, but rest is found in a relationship with Christ. When we enter into Christ, we enter into his eternal finished work and rest. Jesus Christ is our rest. We were created for more than just a day. We were created for relational oneness with our creator Christ. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We were created for rest, relational rest in a personal relationship with Christ. Not, we weren't created for a day on the calendar. We were created for Christ. Amen? That's all I'm trying to say. It oh, <laughs> took a long, long way to do it. In conclusion, just these last thoughts. Are we more lawful than we are loving? Is Christ in our heart? Have you been circumcised in the heart? I know that's a weird way to say it. I'll say it this way. You've been born again. Have we entered into the rest of Christ? Here's a better thing. Are we experiencing and expressing the life, love, and rest that's found in our relationship with Christ? And if not, I would encourage you to at least this week ponder these things. As we're coming into Resurrection Sunday, just ponder, just ponder. Maybe abide still, like how Jesus did. Yeah, maybe just abide still. Well, let's do this. Let's stand to our feet, and we'll be dismissed uh, in a word of prayer. Hey, Brother Walt, will you dismiss us in a word of prayer?